HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni, and this is the 14th year of Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, and we're recording a special episode uh, with book author Josh Bernstein. And, uh, you know, this is going to be a very great show because it's so many years in the making. So um, forget what I'm saying, but let's introduce ourselves. Uh, let's go around the room, Josh and then Andrew. Hey, my name is uh, Joshua M. Bernstein. Somehow stumbled into a career writing about <laughs> beer. Hi, my name is Andrew Thomas. I am a reformed home brewer, now professional distiller with Halftone Spirits in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> well, you know that so many great things came out of the Reformation mu- movement, I guess, right? <laughs> yep. Catholics, Protestants, you know, homebrew to distill. It's probably yeah. a great way to use up your, your, your bad homebrew, right, is d- distilling it. That was, it was a huge part for me. I, was, I actually had moved uh, apartments. And I had something like 35 or 40 gallons of, of beer and, and old wine and just things sitting around and realized there's no way I was going to possibly drink all this. So I bought a cheap little still off Amazon just to literally condense it down and, and quickly fell in love with the process. Wow. Well, isn't it wild? I was saying, isn't it wild? Amazon will just sell you. It's like whatever happens with this thing that could make alcoholic products may happen, but we don't care. <laughs> yeah, they kind of market it as like you can make essential oils or um, you know a very a variety of products that you know aren't intended to be drank. <laughs> well, you guys have a lot to share with me. But let's just you know just just sum this up, um, Josh. You know you you are an important person in the industry. And the last 10, 12 years, um, the, the book that we're going to talk about, The Complete Beer Course, second edition, um, you, you've covered so many things. I mean, the one reason Andrew's on the show is that that way back when you were, you were leading homebrew tours of, of homebrewers in their apartments. And, um, you know, you organized, started organizing events like the Homebrew Jamboree, and you moved on to things like the Can Jam. Um, but, but this Complete Beer Course 
really kind of, uh, it, it's done very well as a beer book and it's kind of defined, it's like the next great book, like a Michael Jackson book that it seems oh. like everyone's once getting. Well, it's a second edition. So just l- let's reflect for a minute on yeah. this book and just, you know, y- you writing it the first time before we talk about changes. It's, it, it was a big moment for you then. Yeah, you know, like I think my first book, Brood Awakening, which was a story of the American craft beer revolution and what was happening and how American brewers were influencing brewers around the globe came out in 2011. And then, you know, when you write your first first book, you're kind of like, well, when's my second book going to happen? Well, it happened really quickly. <laughs> my publishers <laughs> were like, go on, Josh, you did a great job with this book, but how about another book? And so this was probably like December, November, December 2011, and they handed me Kevin Zarelli's Windows in the World Wine Course, which is one of the more influential educational um, wine books of all time. And they're like, do this for beer. And I was just like, okay. But, you know, getting a book which has had been around for decades at that point and really trying to think about how you could port over this wine book to the beer world, a lot of it didn't really make sense. A lot of the things they were talking about, how to appreciate it, what was going on, and just like pairings. It was just it wasn't like a, a one-to-one relationship. And so I spent probably, what, 18 months, give or take, working hard with my editor, Pam Honig, to kind of like think about what would be a a useful beer book to give people the knowledge they need to confidently navigate this often confusing landscape. And so, you know, didn't set everything way back in Egypt and talk about the very beginning, but we were really set things out, like how all these, I thought about beers from the stylistic perspective and like, you know, styles for beer do have their utility. They're not always, you know, my idea of what a style should be maybe different from yours, but they give us a common framework of language, I think, to really discuss some things. So we set the book around um, 12 chapters and within there, talk about how we got one from the past to the present and what maybe the future of beer would be, um, made the tone conversational, made the design as engaging as the writing, hopefully. And the book really took off. And I think um, it helps so many people get into the beer world. It helps so many people understand what the industry is all about. And it showed a lot of people what was possible once maybe you put down this mass-produced bulk by lager and picked up something made by a brewer down the road and so you never you know you always expect and hope that your projects you do are going to be wildly successful but you know complete beer course is something it's been translated multiple languages it's been an audiobook version i think we've sold like a hundred thousand plus copies which is wild and you know it's is that like i was not prepared for that to happen but i was pleasantly surprised that it did no and then it, it we we needed it the beer world needed it i'm, I'm gonna uh I'm going to ask you just one simple question about the book. And then I think Andrew can also say something just to keep the book conversation going. Um, When you talked about how you describe your styles, you were so right. I was just looking through the, the second edition today, the, the the preview and the two to taste section um, is just brilliant. How did you come up with that? It's like every style, Schwarzbier, two beers to taste, rock beer, Czech pills. 
Yeah, I think I think the best way you can learn about beer is by drinking it. I mean, you're going to my my impressions what a beer tastes like are really important, of course, but yours are going to be even more important. So I want people to have I want to select I think um styles of beer that would be hopefully broadly accessible, and we could have almost this like shared experience. No matter if you're drinking uh, the beer in uh, Brooklyn or you're drinking it in San Diego or Texas or anywhere else. So really, the big goal was I think to create i think um to select like widely accessible styles we could understand and i think what what's been interesting is just that so many of these like um styles i thought were gonna become bedrocks or beers that are made bedrocks of certain styles have changed or evolved or disappeared over time like trying to find a non-adjunct you know six seven percent stout these days is like pretty dang hard you know trying to find like a widely available you know, West Coast IPA that people can like all agree upon is like emblematic of a style trying to find like an ESB. I mean, a lot of these things have proven to be really difficult. So I think it's like just in the last decade, I think we've so turned away from having these mass produced classic styles. I think even finding like great examples of these um, time-worn styles can be really challenging and difficult these days. Yeah. Andrew, is there anything you want to, want to add or ask Josh? Josh I'm curious. Is like, yeah, I mean, the, the beer scene has changed so much, certainly in the last decade plus. I mean, we've gone from, I mean, when I was home brewing, it was like, you know, Cascadian Dark Ales or, you know, Black IPAs were kind of all the rage. <laughs> um, you know, and, and yeah, it's kind of Josh was saying, you don't really see these styles anymore. Um, I guess, Josh, what's like one, like, what's a style that you never thought would be included in the book? Is it the the smoothie IPAs? Is, there, is the book, is, over, is it overrun with IPA variations? Or kind of how do you navigate kind of balancing that? I mean, I think pastry stats were a big shock that, you know, when I was sitting down to write the book, you know, barrel-aged imperial stouts were so much, I think, the end-all, be-all of what beer could be. And then we started adding, like, the entire pantry into the beer. So I think pastry stouts were definitely something I had to think of. It's like, because you always want to think, are these styles going to be things going to exist down the line? You know, if I put in Brute IPA into the book, you know, if I, if I update this book, let's say 2018, 2019, I was like, Brute IPA is on fire here forever and you fast forward to today and you're kind of like nobody's making this thing anymore too but i think like i think one of the biggest changes was going from like thinking about wild ales you know back in like 2013 we talked about spontaneously fermented beer as sort of like this like amazing frontier the brewery's going to conquer wild ales done with brett and lactobacillus and asian barrels for years and i mean you know what? Not every example was really good. And I think it turned off a lot of people. The price points were high because they took a lot of time and effort and energy to create. Then along came something like kettle sours, which became like a vehicle for, you know, fruit expression. So just looking at something like how this evolution of like, you know, tart acidic beers has gone over time, even I think the heyday of like Goza, you know, salty, salinic, like refreshing German style beer, we revived this ancient style. And then, you know, had this really big moment, I think like mid, mid 2000s and all of a sudden it kind of like faded away from these classic examples. And now it's just kettle sours with loads of fruit. You know, <laughs> I think that's beer. You just give people what they want and what makes them happy. Right. And yeah. You know, on, on that note, 20, the summer of 2015, uh, Eric Asimov, the New York Times did do a feature article about Goza. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you, I think you nailed it. Um, after that, it was a lot of lime and salt beer. So, yeah, but I think I can. I think one thing back then too is like looking at 
so many of the breweries that are in the book now were just home brewers back in 2013. And there's so many big dreams I think people had back then to really, I think, like, you know, help shape the industry and move it forward on there. I mean, Andrew, for you, you know, we met originally. I mean, like, that was really the hope and dreams was to open up a brewery. So I guess for you, you know, like, you know, we see breweries nowadays have really evolved beyond just offering, you know, beer they're offering, you know. Hard kombuchas, hard seltzers, hop waters, and a lot of them moving into distilling. Now, at what point did you sort of like think about changing for you personally that, you know, maybe, you know, put the uh, put the homebrew kit aside and, and pick up the still? Yeah. Um, you know, it really, when I got that first taste of, of distilling, it just it was very, very exciting. Um, I mean, I was distilling beer out and what came off the still wasn't great, uh, but I did have some like old wine uh, that I had fermented and, and that came off as kind of an early eau de vie or brandy. Um, and it, what came up was actually quite delicious. And I was like, wow, there's something really, really interesting here. I still had to do, when I started distilling, I still do fermentations, right? I still need to make like a corn wash um, or like a rice and a corn blend. So I still had to use my, um, my skills as a home brewer and a fermenter to kind of create that, that pre-distillate um, uh, beverage. And so that certainly played a huge factor into it, like knowing how to uh, – you know, use these, you reutilize these, do fermentations, work with stuck fermentations, all those boring things you deal with as a home brewer, uh, or those challenges, I guess you could say. Um, I still really needed to, to utilize that, but I quickly fell in love with making gin. And because gin was interesting to me, because when you're a home brewer or a brewer, you're making a new beer every week, you know, one week you're making a Pilsner, maybe you're making a South the next week, and you're kind of just playing with variety all the time. And so I was kind of approached to stealing in that respect where it's like, there are literally thousands of botanicals you can use in a gin. And so why not create different gins and use and explore different flavor profiles um, to what's available? Um, and when I looked at kind of the, the market, it didn't really seem like a lot of people were playing very deeply in the gin category. You know, they're making a gin that uses the same 10 or 12 botanicals and they'd make one gin and that'd be their sole gin offering. Um, and for me, it was just like, well, there's, there's a lot more to this to explore that the category, um, is not, is, is not, um, utilizing. Yeah. It seems to me like, you know, Jim was a lot like how the IPA market used to be, you know, we used to talk about these geographic distinctions, like, all right, so the West coast IPA, you know, and the mm -hmm. East coast IPA, and, you know, you fell into a couple of camps of certain things too. And now it can be kind of. You know, all rules are off, <laughs> essentially. Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's definitely like the Wild West. I feel it's like, you know, same thing. If you're putting a bunch of, you know, various, you know, fruits or salts or whatever into beers or into pastry stouts, it's like, yeah, why not utilize and, and just kind of really expand what the category can be? Um, so I think there's a, a huge correlation between my history as a home brewer and kind of where that led me into, into distilling. Wow, that's a great intro. Yeah, I'm going to jump. I'm going to talk more about Josh book history because – I, I feel like I, I have been fortunate to interview with most of your books. Take yeah. me back to about, I don't know if it was 2017 or 18 or 19. It was a Wild East Brewing pre-opening. And I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. what, that was one of your book releases. What was that, Josh? Because Gr oh, yeah. Groundlings Pizza Truck was out front. And Andrew, I'm pretty sure you were, you were previewing 
where you had some of your spirits too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah I think we had uh, we had three different gins that night as well. So, yep. I was Pre- previewing, which is a uh, a nice way of saying, you know, giving away stuff so we wouldn't sell them to the rest of right? <laughs> um, but no, um, you know, I think back in 2019, that was a Drink Better Beer, which, you know, the landscape of beer really got confusing back then. I mean, distribution patterns were changing. We were queuing up for four packs of beer. Cans have become dominant. So just, I think, to like make, it's almost like a bridge book like in between for my, to make sense of what was happening there. But yeah, so that was for Drink Better Beer. So we had a, um, a big old party over at Wildies before they opened up. And I think one of the things I've always loved doing is, you know, beer brings people together in the best way possible. So I've really thought about events as ways to, I think, like unite humans. And over the years, I've really thought, I've done everything from um, beer and cheese events, 30 feet underground in old cheese caves, who've been leading the homebrew tours, which we basically would go to three different homebrewers' homes. You would drink their beer with total strangers who were friends by the end. Um, I've done, like, on, like, gosh, ferry rides. We've, like, partied on the Staten Island ferry in between going there before. And, you know, and trying to find, I think, introducing New Yorkers to spaces they may not typically have access to. So I think it's really interesting for me to be able to take people into a brewery as it's being built out. So Wild East was literally a construction zone, and then I had, um, and they made all of their beers as homebrew, essentially, because their um, professional equipment wasn't hooked up at that point in time. And then we brought a bunch of people into this room. Groundlings Pizza, which makes terrific stuff in the Hudson Valley in New York City, was parked outside. Um, you know, Andrew was there serving up some gins. We had some beers from Strong Rope and Finback as well. And just this great way, I think, of getting people to come together, too. Because, you know, oftentimes people are like, oh, are you going to do a reading at your book events? And I'm like, no, nobody wants it. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to hear, you know, half people don't want to hear you talk at a bar about beer. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, so, you know, it was like, I don't really do readings at a lot of my events and stuff. But I just try to um, find ways to bring people together. You get a great, you get a great event, you get some great drinks and hope you get a great book to take home and read at your leisure. That, that was probably my favorite book launch event ever. And it was also a, a really great brewery pre-opening event. So you kind of nailed it. <laughs> yeah. And then we've done, I think other ones too did, uh, other parties over at Brooklyn Brewery, um, City Reliquary, this amazing city museum in um, Williamsburg, did an event there back in 2011, where I basically went to Greenpoint and they bought like 50 pounds of kielbasa. My friend Jason <laughs> grilled kielbasa in the backyard as we drank like beers from Single Cut and other home brewers that weren't quite open yet in New York City. And so it's just, it's been really wild to watch this evolution from, I think, um, you know, I've been in New York since 2000 and just watching this beer scene go from being so import driven with a couple homegrown breweries, beers from elsewhere to being something that, you know, people send their beer here to be on the showcase with the world. And just I think we've got, you know, our breweries and distilleries in this city, I think, are amazing. It's not being a homer, but just the competition is so great that if you're not doing a good job here, the city will eat you alive and tell you that pretty quickly with like terrible sales. And yeah. so, but I think like our quality of here for our, in our beverage scene is really high right now. Yeah. And the, the, you know, the consumers will tell you, you know, if you put a, a keg on a, at a bar, if someone's not buying a, a second glass, you know, that tells you something right away. But hey, yeah. um, let, let's give a shout out, you know, all those, you know, like Andrew, l- l- let's spotlight a couple of, of the home brewers who, who have breweries now or, or are brewing at a brewery. Because I know between 
the two of you, 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 you know, a couple really good ones. Oh my God. I mean, Andrew, you just got to walk around, you got to walk around Gowanus where your distillery is located, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. I remember like, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, I went to an event where it was like this, the organizer called it the leaders of the new brew. And uh, <laughs> there were 10 of us there and nine out of 10 of us have gone on to start uh, breweries or distilleries. Uh, you know, um, Jason Saylor of Strong Rope, um, Brett and Tyler over at Wild East, um, you know, uh, Chris Kuzme and, and Mary Eyes that were there as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I think I, I correct me wrong, Josh, but I would imagine Nine out of ten breweries in the city were probably all homebrewers at one point. Um, yeah, I mean, it feels 100%. like a lot. A lot of the talent, like you know, even at Strong Road, you have Alex Biederman, you know, the head brewer there, who was a former homebrewer as well. Then you go over to you know Finback, former homebrewers as well, Single Cut, former homebrewers. I met the transmitter, the people about Rob and Anthony from Transmitter, right. um, back when they were still homebrewing. They actually poured at Copenhagen a beer bar in Crown Heights before Copenhagen opened up with their homebrewed beer, which is like, so you got like a brewery preview and a bar preview all in one. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just been so crazy to watch like all of these homebrewers go on to open up breweries. And part of it too, I think like if you live in New York city, you understand what it takes with the rent and everything like that. And it's not such a shock to you when things go awry because things always go awry in New York city, things get delayed, costs spiral out of control. But, you know, so I think it really helps that we've got this, like, collective, um, you know, this collective wherewithal to push forward no matter what sort of, like, obstacles get put in your course. And that's just, I think, why so many of the breweries open up in New York City are people that lived here already because they knew what it took. They knew what happened. I mean, we've had very few breweries come from outside New York City that have lasted, like, Polliner is gone. Um, down on the Bowery, they open up there too. Um, the Keller is gone from City Field. Um, everything like that. And I mean, even Andrew, when you guys were opening up, I mean, how many delays did you guys have? I mean, the gas. Oh, we're talking about the the gas delay. I think was just like put everybody over. Countless. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's the the National Grid uh, gas moratorium where they weren't going to do any new hookups to any new businesses in the city, lest um, uh, Governor Cuomo acquiesce to some you know pipeline that they wanted to have built um so that was a full year if not if not 14 or 15 months uh then just the regular delays of, of construction uh you know then COVID hit kind of right when we were we were ramping up to open in the spring of 2020 uh so then COVID hit and then, so there's obviously like stop workage kind of across the city and then slowly we were able to you know bring some workers back in uh and really start production here in June of 2020 um but yeah i mean we sat on a lease for uh 20 months before we were actually able to open um and obviously we were working through some of that but like a much longer lead time than, than we certainly were expecting andrew yeah. let, let's go back i remember i had john a couple years ago tell us where where you opened and and what you know where it is and the affiliation and everything yeah yeah so uh we are in guanas brooklyn on president street um we are right across the street from Strong Rope, for those who know Strong Rope. Uh, and we are partnered with Finback Brewery. Uh, Finback's been open for, uh, it'll be nine years right about now. And so Basil and Kevin, the two owners of uh, Finback, are my partners in Half Tone Spirits. Uh, they are also from the homebrew scene. Uh, you know, we all went to the same homebrew club at, at uh, Union Hall in Park Slope. Uh, they started a brewery. Uh, once I started distilling, uh, they kind of took a keen interest in kind of uh, seeing you know, different beverages that they could offer kind of in their tap room. And so 
we decided we could try and find a second location that can kind of house both projects, um, a Brooklyn location for Finback, uh, a home for Halftone. Uh, and so, yeah, we found a place on President Street between 3rd and 4th uh, that's, that served us very well. Uh, and, yeah, we're kind of right in the middle of, of three other breweries. So it's kind of a nice little hub of, of Brooklyn for, for people. We get people every weekend that kind of, you know, do the tour. They'll stop at Stronger Up. They'll stop here. They'll go up to Threes. They'll go up to uh, Wild East. So it's a nice little kind of walking tour of, of local craft beer and craft spirits. And how's, how's Half Tone fitting in to, to, to the mix there? Are you at their tasting bar? Do you have a separate tasting bar? I haven't been it's over all, there. Yeah, it's all integrated, which is quite nice. So, I mean, if you, if you come in and you order one beer and one cocktail, it's the same menu, uh, same tab. You know, we split it uh, on the back end on our side. So it, it's you know, pretty seamless for, uh, for the consumer standpoint. Um, yeah. One of the nice things that we do is we're also a farm distillery, so we're able to sell to other breweries. So um, uh, Wild East and um, Strong Rope are both able to carry like our canned cocktails, for example, which is great for them because it allows them to offer something that's locally produced, um, but maybe they need a gluten-free option or a non-beer option for, for their patrons as well. Yeah, and I think, I think to this point too, I think we, so many of us, when you're in the beer world, you want to drink everything. No, at all costs, you're just like, I'll try this like double dry hop IPA. I'll drink this like oyster smoked stout. I'll drink this and that too. You know, after a while, you're kind of like, ah, I'm a little fatigued on there. So I think it's like, just because you love beer doesn't mean you only have to drink beer. And so I think a lot of us early on when the craft beer thing was really taking off, we're just like, beer, it's all beer, beer all the time. But now you're like, well, you know, a good cocktail is pretty good too. Or, you know, a glass of wine's nice or... A good non-alcoholic hot water can be pretty solid as well, too. So I think it's like Andrew and what's happening now really fits in this sort of like zeitgeist of where that we're becoming omnivorous drinkers. You know, you know, we're omnivorous drinkers and trying as many things as possible. And so it fits in right there, too. And I mean, it's people just don't drink the same thing through maybe every week, every day, even within a session, I think, at a bar. Yeah. J- Josh, w- one thing about you that I've always re- enjoyed seeing is just how much you appreciate and and are able to showcase a wide variety of of beers and, and other drinks. Like for example, you just mentioned hop water. You you you've been very price conscious at times. I, I feel like you you've you're able to write for different audiences and a broad audience. Is yeah. that your own nature? Or is that more because you're a writer and you're getting assigned to those jobs? Well, you know, I mean, you write, you know, in the beginning, you write what you know, I think. I mean, that's how you get gigs. So early 20s, like when I was like, what, 22 in 2000 in New York City, it's like, you know, I went to dive bars and I was broke. So you wrote about, <laughs> you wrote about the dollar <laughs> beer nights. You wrote about like all these open bars that were happening. You wrote about this stuff. And I think it's like, I've always had an appreciation for high, low and everything in between on there as well, too. And I think like, you know, I think, you know, not to my horn, but I think the hallmark of like, a good writer is being curious about the world that's around you and what you do. And so I think for me, it's really been about um, trying as many things as possible. But I've also worked for such a huge variety of audiences. I mean, God, over the years, I've worked for Dolls Magazine, the New York Daily News, like Post, like um, like Food and Wine, Savour, like Bon Appetit, Gourmet, like everything, everything up and down, left and right, Men's Journal, Men's Health, like pretty much New York Times, like name a publication, the chances are pretty high I've written for it. And, you know, your goal as a writer, I think, is to um, write for that audience and the tone that they've set. 
And so I'm able to I'm able to take the knowledge I have and really give people what they want and the tone and the knowledge base that they desire for each publication and each outlet. Because you know, ultimately, if I were creating my own, my own publication, I'd write a certain way. But you are the publications are they've hired you to do a job, and your jobs to fit in with their publications. So you know. I've been able to be really malleable and adaptable over the over the decades of just being able to write for as many people as as humanly possible, which has kept me afloat as journalism continues its slow motion collapse. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. And Andrew, now again talking about Josh. For you, going going back to those those early homebrew days, um, what, what what do you feel? What do you want to say about Josh as a writer? What he represents to the community? I mean, this is a great walk down memory lane because I feel like I've been to, I think every book release Josh has put out uh, and obviously a number of the homebrew uh, events. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's great knowing Josh all his years. And one of my favorite things is that he gets a million samples in the mail and more <laughs> samples than any human could possibly probably drink. Um, and so I oftentimes get to partake in some of the more, uh, weird and esoteric beverages that he gets in the mail. So he'll come down to the distillery and he'll bring the latest versions of, I don't know, hard Mountain Dew that are, you know, cloyingly sweet or what last weekend you brought in a Lipton a hard iced tea and a, a pickled sour from distill, from distill brewery. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, he has his finger on the pulse cause he really just gets everything anybody makes kind of gets, siphoned through josh somehow and then occasionally i get the trickle down of just the most weird <laughs> so stuff you can find so andrew's saying like i like josh because he gives me free drinks no. <laughs> <laughs> half the drinks we are dream for us unfortunately uh, um. uh no i think no it's just you know like what i've, what I've really admired by andrew and other people in the industry is just kind of like watching everybody grow up together it's not often you get a chance to watch everybody grow up and really come into their own and be able to have these like dreams become realities. And so to me, it's really been amazing to watch this happen over the years in New York, not just New York City, but nationwide. Man, I mean, it's like we talk about craft beer as if it's been here and craft distilling as if it's been here forever, but it hasn't. I mean, all of these industries are still so young on historical timelines. Even we talk about Sierra Nevada, they're what, like 45 years, 43 years old? Yeah, at this point too, that's pretty young. I'm 44 years of age. I'm old. I'm older than Sierra Nevada. <laughs> you know, so we talk about these things as being around forever, but I think we're really at the dawn of really what's coming next right now, and it's a really messy moment that we're in as we kind of like come out of uh, COVID, and everybody's tastes are just scrambled, and we're not going out in the same ways, and it's just like it's a really, I think like it's I think the next five years are going to be really. You can see a lot of a lot of changes. We kind of like solidify into what we're going to become as a as a drinking nation or a non drinking nation. Even wow. Well, hey, th th this is a great start to the show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in two thousand and eight, and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to heritageradionetwork.org, a nonprofit network with over 30 podcasts that, that come out, some weekly and some seasonally, but it's worth your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So, wow, we've got Josh Bernstein on with the Complete Beer Course book, second edition, and he's here with Andrew Thomas, the Halftone Spirits. We talk a little bit about just what the scene's been like in New York City and some of his writing. So we're going to keep talking. Josh, uh, what we were just saying, I'm going to ask you, do you ever have to buy beer anywhere? I, I do buy beer. Um, I think, like, I do buy beer. I would not say I buy a case of beer a week because it's not possible. But I buy beer because, you know, I think, like, I know what I like to drink these days. I will try most everything that gets sent to me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to drink all of it too. So, you know, you want the things that make you happy, the things give you pleasure. It's like Sierra Nevada is at Trader Joe's, what, a couple days ago? Sierra Nevada came back out at Summerfest again, their Pilsner, and it's just like, you know, hadn't been out for a couple of years. I was like, you know what? I need a six-pack of Sierra Nevada Summerfest right now. I, you know, I like bit, that too. Yeah, or Bitburger was uh, when I was like picking up something else. I was like, I love Bitburger. I'm going to grab Bitburger. So I tend to buy things that I know are going to be, I think, um, guaranteed pleasure givers, I guess is a weird way of putting it. But I think like the challenge nowadays, there's just like so many beers on the shelves. I cannot literally or physically and economically buy all of these beers to try them all too. And you don't just want to, I don't know. So I, I, I tend to like spend money on things I know I'm going to really like. Then, you know, maybe I'll buy like a can or two of things I want to try here and there as well too but i mean um yeah i do buy beer but i i haven't bought that much beer i'm looking at my fridge right now and it is overflowing at the moment i am uh i think what, what happened like people didn't come over for a couple years really <laughs> and so <laughs> the whole like clear out the fridge let's have a party type of thing didn't happen and things just stacked up and it's it's truly not as much fun as you think to drink multiple um, bombers of 12% Imperial Stout by yourself, as you may think. It's good for one night, but not, not repeatedly. That's good to share. Hey, so um, the new, the, the new, the second edition of Complete Beer Course, are you having a, a book launch party? Yeah, we're going to be doing something, a little something over at KCBC on Thursday. Um, uh, Thursday, May 18th, 6 to 9. Tickets are available or uh, tickets to the door. You just show up if you want. Um, yeah, I think for me, we're going to be hanging out in the production space. I want to bring people into part of the brewery they may not typically have access to. But I think one of the cool things for the party for me is like, you know, there's all this talk about AI right now, what it can do, what's going to do to all these industries. So my friend uh, Jason, the designer, and I worked to create these like, we were like, huh, using AI, what, what beer labels could we create with that? So we created this like, oh my God, it's almost like a, a monster, a psychotic monster in like a 1960s beach party um, scene. So we had KCBC canned up a 
one of their Pilsners they had with our label on it. Then we also did like me and Jason did like a five pack of AI generated um, beer stickers that are like as like ludicrous and absurd as you would think. And just, you know, as a way to, I think, you know, it's a party, you know, we want people to come away with more stuff than nobody wants a coaster anymore. Nobody wants another koozie. So, but you know, what's really fun. People love stickers and they like beer. So why not give people the things that they'll actually probably use in their life and enjoy. But yeah, it's always been like in the years past we've done for like swag, we've done like giant foam fingers. Um, you know, did custom buttons, I think, for the last one as well, too. I think it's really about trying to have, you know, if you spend multiple years on any project, you better have a party. You better have, like, fun swag to give away, too. Oh, that's great. And then the, the second edition o- overview, how is it different from the, the first edition 10 years ago? Uh, completely, I guess, in a one-word answer. You know, like when, you know, originally they signed me to redo this book back in 2019. And, you know, this was like after Drink Better Beer came out. So I started working on it then, you know, hindsight, as we say, is 2020. Um, and so, you know, all of a sudden updating like IPAs to try didn't really seem so important in the world. Um, so it probably took about a year off from that project just because we had no idea who was going to open up and who was going to close down and what places would still be there or the people would still be there. I mean, down the line. So, but I think by like um, early, you know, springish 2021 summer, things started solidifying and feeling, I think a bit more hopeful out there. Um, So I picked the project up again, but I realized that I think so much of like how we enjoyed beer back then in 2013, we, we went to beer festivals, you know, beer pairing dinners, um, you took pilgrimages to beer cities and like we weren't doing that stuff anymore in that same way because like your bodega today has better beer than the best beer store did 10 years ago and it's just like nuts I mean literally there's bodegas near me where you can go get like other half and like you know been back and like you know cultish beer from elsewhere just sitting in the store shelves not too far away from the guy making my bacon egg and cheese in the morning <laughs> and that type of thing so i think like you had to rethink like what was important like how you how we learned about beers changed and so i wanted to make the book really about people um took out everything about beer weeks which nobody cares about in the same or doesn't care about in the same way I took out so much about you know when the first book came out it was kind of like five great you could have like here are five great breweries known in the uk and now the UK could have an entire book and has had entire books written about their beer scenes. So what's the point of doing such a superficial job? So I really wanted to really put the focus on the people that were making the industry happen. And so I did profiles on the head brewers, canning line operators, um, everybody in between, you know, quality control specialists, some salespeople. How do they get in the beer? What do they do? And how do they help like this industry move forward? Because if you think about like, I think 2013, we really celebrated this concept of the brewmaster from which these like really exalted figureheads in beer. Um, and, you know, that was really great, I think, to help spread the word. But nowadays, I think there's a greater awareness that a brewery is not just one person. Well, ideally, it is like a ton of people working together to make something happen. I mean, so I think like for me, it was just I probably tore down half the book and got rid of it. Rebuilt the other half of that and added like 30,000, 35,000 additional words. The book's actually like 25, 30% bigger, not to mention mostly there is nary a page that wasn't completely rewritten just because everything's changed. And I think like we're also smarter than we were 10 years ago, hopefully, right? And so I didn't know as much then as I do now. So I was able to go back and be like, ah, you're an idiot. 
why do you do that? You know, <laughs> it, it was a strange moment of being able to look back the mistakes you made in your youth and be able to correct them, which isn't, I think, an opportunity that we get too often. Wow. Well, that uh, you mentioned the the, the jobs. Um, that was one section I was going to ask you about the brewery job spotlight section, which which really looks interesting. Um, do, do you want to? Just talk about one of those people that you spotlighted, because I even noticed uh, there was maybe more diversity too. Yeah, you know, I think you know diversity of jobs and diver- I think diversity of jobs and diversity of uh, people behind them as well too. I think you know, talk to Ashley Carter from Bierstadt. You know, so much about Bierstadt's really all about Bierstadt Lager House in Denver is really about like you know the slow pour pilsner, and it's about you know it takes like five minutes to be poured, and you get this like lustrous head of foam on top. And that's become almost like this this thing that people seek out whenever in Denver or whenever they see this beer being served on tap anywhere. But who are the people behind it? And how did Ashley get into making beer? You know, so I wanted to really dive down into it. So you may know about the beer itself, but who are the people behind it? So Dovin, you know, she was like played soccer, coached soccer. So went in from that too and like found this and while while coaching soccer and playing soccer, you know, fell into better beer, which led her down this like pathway and worked at a homebrew shop, which led to getting a job at a brewery, which led to Bierstadt. And it's just like wild. I think like these these things make I think the beer world feel more human and feel more accessible. Um and I think it's the stories that we hold. So even if I think like even if she were to move on to a different job, a different position, I think her story still holds merit. And it's something we can all, that you know, people can understand and learn how to got to that point. And I think with, you know, with you, Andrew, I think like, I think how many people know about your background as well too? Like, you know, working, you know, you traveled the world interviewing so many TV stars and that, yeah. you know, like how much do you think that your past really helped influence where <laughs> you're at for your job? Oh, it's massive. Um, you know, Wait, wait, stop, stop, Andrew. Actually, yeah. tell us what you what you do or you did, and I I, I want to know your story because I think that's why Josh wanted you to come on today. Yeah, you know. <laughs> also a friend. <laughs> All right. So um, you're not just you're not just a home brewer. I was not just a home brewer. No, uh, I actually spent 13 years uh, working uh, in the um, marketing side of H for HBO, um, and so and more specifically on the Cinemax brand. Uh, which is great because everybody on, in the marketing team wanted to work on all the HBO shows. And I got assigned all the Cinemax shows and the Cinemax shows all filmed internationally, which was amazing. So um, that allowed me, to, allowed me to travel to South Africa nine times, the UK a handful of times, uh, Central Europe half a dozen times, Malaysia a few times, things like that. And so, yeah, being exposed to like all these different cultures, uh, these different cuisines, and all these countries, they're all making gin and they're all making spirits uh, and they're all making beer. And so I was exposed to a lot of what the world was doing and how they approached things, uh, which I found incredibly fascinating because, you know, when you look at the history of beer and you look at the history of any spirits, you know, everybody's utilizing kind of the resources they had on hand, um, you know, whether it's, you know, malted barley or if it's a bit of wheat or if it's, you know, if you're doing a, you know, a, a spontaneous fermentation with uh, oak and um, uh, uh, what's it called? Sorry. Um, uh, and, and, and wild yeast strains. Sorry. Um, you know, and the same thing that happened with, with distilling. It's like they were utilizing the same uh, technology of distillation and then flavoring their beverages with just whatever herbs and spices they had on hand. So kind of 
witnessing that and being exposed to it really kind of informed me on as to like how to be a better beverage producer, be it from beer when I started out into uh, distillation, uh, just, uh, into distilling now. It's, it was just fascinating to see how everybody was using the same basic structure to create something that's almost completely different from what somebody else is making halfway around the world. Last thing, Andrew, just so what is your job at, at Halftone? Like, what, what do you kind of do day to day? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you know, in, this, in this period of Josh's, you know, spotlights. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's great that, like, you know, Josh is certainly highlighting, you know, the, the, the people that do the nuts and bolts work behind the scenes because uh, it is very, very important. Um, for me, though, I'm, I'm the owner distiller and pretty much – Anything that goes into the bottle, I do. I'll, I do the distillation, I do the bottling, I do the labeling, I do the corking, the sealing, the packaging, um, I do all the cleaning, all that stuff. Um, fortunately, because we're partnered with Finback, uh, we are able, Halftone is able to utilize uh, the front of house staff. Uh, so, you know, the people who are making the cocktails are all the Finback employees and they're super enthusiastic about the Halftone brand. Uh, the, more, the majority of deliveries are delivered by the, the, the Finback team. Uh, which is an incredible resource to be able to utilize as well. Um, but pretty much anything behind the scenes uh, is is done by me. So every day is a little bit different. That's great. Josh? Yeah, I mean, my day-to-day. You know, my day-to-day? Yeah, <laughs> Wait, I do. <laughs> uh, you know, we got a nine-year-old in fourth grade. So, I mean, like every morning is like a rush to the 750 until when 750 hits, we got to walk uh, one mile to school. And, you know, as they did in the olden days, we definitely walk one mile to school uphill, um, no matter if it's raining or snowing outside. So I get to school. And then, you know, I usually jump right into the day. And I mean, every day is a little bit different. I mean, if I'm doing interviews, I'll go back home and then spend all day talking to people across the country and around the world. Um, if I'm trying to like generate ideas, maybe I'll go for a bike ride to think about what's out there, you know, or I'll spend my days writing by trying to break up my days. So I'm not, I'm either writing or interviewing or generating ideas. And so every day is a little bit different on there as well too. I'm typically working on anywhere from five to seven stories simultaneously, everyone in a different stage of, um, having been written, filed, edited, um, awaiting edit, awaiting payment, awaiting publication, awaiting everything. So that's kind of like, I, so I'm simultaneously living in the present and the way future with a lot of my stories right now. Um, and then with the book stuff, I mean, it's, you'd think you'd got this giant marketing team behind you, but I've had to do a lot of the marketing and get it out there and tell people what's about what's happening. I think it just requires so much, um, our attention spans are so short nowadays with everything. I mean, me included that getting people to pay attention and notice what you're doing is really hard. So, you know, we thought, so, you know, so doing the marketing and how do you make swag? So my friend Jason and like, let's make ridiculous swag that at least will make us happy if nobody cares. So, you know, <laughs> it's, so it's like every, every day is a little bit different, but I've been freelance man for 22 years this fall. So this whole thing or hustle culture or whatever is just kind of in my day to day. Like, am I consulting on a project for somebody? Am I pitching somebody? Am I, you know, staring ahead at the wall, uncertain what I'm going to be doing because for two hours I don't have any work and I think nobody's ever going to call me again? That happens too. But I think it's like <laughs> all these things all together go into it. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of wild to have a, you know, I could not have told my, you know, twenty two year old self, twenty two year old self sitting at holiday cocktail lounge 
drinking three dollar gin and tonics from like Stefan, you know, as I'm like like sad sack writing my journal that one day I'd be like have a six beer books under my belt and that's what I'd be doing. It would be unfathomable, but it's been kind of like a wild journey to get to this point right now. Wow. And then and again about the, the new second edition of the complete beer course. Um it seems I don't know if it was a new feature, but they're definitely new. The brewery profiles. So you know, there's Jack's Abbey, Boulevard, Firestone Walker. What was the selection process for those and, and you know, the process of, of writing those? Well, I think, you know, too, you want to have, you know, you want to have people that show the nuts and bolts, I think, of the brewing industry, you know, for the profiles. And you wanted to have, or I wanted to have breweries that best exemplify these styles of beers. So, you know, you look and see what people are making. And you're like, okay, you're a lager specialist. You're a blah, blah, blah specialist. And then I tried to find ones I thought, like, really lived that truth. Um, you know, at the beginning, the first edition, I had stuff like a Crooked Stave, which is really at the vanguard of like spontaneous fermentation and wild beer. And, you know, Chad Jacobson, like the uh, the owner, wrote his like, was a dissertation or PhD or something on bread, friend of my season. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, oh my gosh. But you fast forward today, they're making like, you know, tons of IPAs and Pilsners and like, you know, the wild beer aspects, not as much of their um, MO as they used to be. So it was like Hermit Thrush in Vermont. You know, their motto is like all sour beers. So, you know, it was like, okay, Hermit Thrush should be a great case study. Um, Victory is another good example. The first edition, I had them talking about all their lagers and pilsners they did over the years. And then, you know, Golden Monkey just became this like, Golden Monkey became a cash cow. And now the majority of the production is um, triples and like Prima Pills is kind of like fallen by the, still being produced, but kind of fallen by the wayside within the pecking order of the brewery sales hierarchy. So I was like, okay, Jack Savvy is focusing on loggers exclusively. Let's talk to them and see how they're doing and, and do that too. Then um, Or Green Flash, you know, they were the IPA example in the first edition. And they had this 50-state expansion goal that kind of like fell flat. And they ended up like now they're a subsidiary of like a cannabis company. And, you know, it's just not – so I was like, okay, well, let's find another brewery that does it. So a lot of it was like who is do, who's had an interesting story – who's focusing on this and who's really pushing the boundaries of what's possible for certain styles of beer too. Or even for the uh, wood age section, I decided to bring in, I think like instead of having a brewery, it's like food or crafters, right? Nothing that has changed the game for so many breweries. So what's it like to create this like um, food or company where you drink, you know, whole cloth, you know, thin air. And it's like a wild story how they founded this company and made this sort of like domestic um, food or production company out of uh, St. Louis. Wow, no, that's great, and I definitely recommend getting the book. Um, I've been looking through my press press preview, and um, I'm really loving all the new additions. Um, Andrew, you're you're going out tonight. Let's back to the book. But what's out there now? A, a style of beer that you're you're really just feel like drinking right now. Man, I, you know, I'm all about lagers and uh, and you know you know five percent crystal clear beers, man. It's just like I want a highly carbonated, sparkling, super clean, uh, easy drinking beer. Um, I'm over the hazy IPAs that are under carbonated and just kind of heavy on the palate. I want something clean and crisp and refreshing. Josh. Yeah, you know what? I am also of a certain age now, which I think I think you reach a certain age, kind of like, well, I guess it's Pilsner time in my life. We all circle back to what we love, but um, I've also been getting back into kind of like West Coast. I, I I definitely hit fatigue on hazy, but I'm really curious, like what's happening with West Coast IPAs right now, and I think this reboot of the West Coast IPA 
where they're a lot cleaner. Um, you know, they're, 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 they've always been clean, but they've got this clean, this clean bitterness. It's not overpowering as it used to be using a lot more tropical aromatics on there, um, fruitier hop profiles. So it's not just a double dog dare of how many IBUs you can like consume in one sitting. Um, but it's kind of like, and gone are the days of like pallet wrecker and all these beers that were just like punishment in the glass. So I'm curious, like how people are rebooting and rethinking what it can mean to create a West Coast IPA. And I'm finding I'm you know, getting back into them, like some bitterness some tropical aromas, like not too much cloying sweetness, a fair amount of carbonation. It's kind of like hitting the spot. Like the ones that can sit in the 6% range where I tend to go for, um, you know, I tend to think I'm bold and daring, can drink like multiple 7 8% beers. You know, it just takes one night to set me off that for the next month. <laughs> yeah, talking about the regions, have either of you kept up with what's going on in Portland, Oregon? Um, I know that, uh, you know, Jeff is out there. Jeff Allworth, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, was out, I was out in Portland last summer. Um, I try to keep up as much as, as much as I can, but I think it's just, it's with 9,000 plus breweries in America, <laughs> and not to mention how many distilleries, Andrew, I'm not sure how many domestic distilleries there are right now, but it's like, it's it's physically impossible to keep up to date on every single brand and just how many things are happening on the local and regional and micro level right now. I mean, there's what, like there's only like 40, 50 breweries in New York city. I can't get up to the Bronx to go to like Bronx brewery or gun Hill and things like that. It's like impossible in my own backyard to keep track of everything. So I think it's, you know, you try, I think you travel when you can um, to get to places and, and get an eagle eye perspective. But I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to keep track on these different regions anymore. I mean, Andrew, like even distilling, how do you keep track of stuff? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a huge challenge because, like, especially if you this distilling and and spirits are so regional right now, where it's like, you know, when you travel, like I, I'm from Minnesota, you know, I go to Minnesota and there's like you know seven or eight great great craft distilleries there, and they their distribution footprint is you know Minnesota. Maybe outside of the Twin Cities, maybe they'll hit like Western Wisconsin, um, but none of them have huge national distribution, which I think is actually really great. You know, I, I love to be able to go to a different state or different part of the country and have really zero idea of, of kind of what they're making there and just like diving in. Um, you know, Josh was kind of saying like some of these breweries a couple of years ago, they're doing the kind of the national plan. And it kind of became boring. You know, you'd be, you'd, I'd go back to Minnesota and okay, the, the same beers, they have the same stone and the same, um, you know, Boulevard and, and Goose Island beers that, that we have out in New York. Um, but I think with like the diversifying and the, and the huge plethora of, of breweries now and distilleries, it's actually quite fun to visit different parts of the country and kind of be blown away by new stuff that, you know, new breweries, new names, new brands, new spirits that you had no idea even existed. Yeah, I think that's it. Now, I think things are becoming much more local and regional in a sense. I mean, you know, I think I think as like brew craft breweries like look to the big breweries and thought the marker of having made it would be being in all 50 states. But the reality is, it's like you don't need to be in all 50 states that I mean, do you have a marketing plan? Like we're not we're not the United States. We're divided states of pace. I mean, it's like what resonates in one place is be different than the other one too. You see how much regionality we have in food. And I think we're getting to that regionality and beer and preference and just these weird quirks have settled in over time. Like, um, like in Montana, like uh, kettle house brewing made a scotch ale and the scotch ale became a huge success. And now scotch ale is like the drink that people want to have over in like 
Montana, but you go elsewhere, nobody cares about Scotch ales, right? Scotch ale. Wow. Okay. I know. Cool. Right. <laughs> But yeah. you've got but you've got these kind of like small micro things that are out there and it's like I think it's super fascinating to watch how all these things are popping up and like why people gravitate around certain styles of beer and what's out there. And I mean, I was just down in Austin, Texas and just seeing, you know, it's hot as Hades down there, you know, even when it was in April, you know, early May. But I mean you got a lot of pilsners and lagers as sort of like European traditions and just like how, you know, I was at Live Oak Brewing and they had like five, of like the eight to 10 beers on tap they had, I think like five or six were Pilsners. You had like a, a Polish Pilsner, an American Pilsner, pre-prohibition Pilsner. And it's like on and on and on. And I was just kind of like, I was like, oh my good God. It's like, I don't often look at the tap list. I'm like, I want to drink all six beers or, but I was like, I would like to drink. I'll drink as many you, you, know, you know what I, you know what I want right now? I had it last week. I was at Trillium. I had some, some of some of the big real hoppy beers and then they brought out the, the smell alone it was a super super like grassy hellas lager <laughs> that that was everything it was supposed to be and um that's what i'm craving right now just that that taste of that hellas lager this time of year you yeah. guys are amazing yeah. andrew last thing do you still or ever distill from beer and um anything you want to say about that uh, we distill from uh, a, a corn spirit, so it's all 100% corn, no hops, no anything else involved there. Uh, and I have not brewed in probably uh, seven years at this point. Um, you know, never say never. I, I my, my days are pretty much occupied by distilling, and I also have a two-and-a-half-year-old son. So uh, and running a business and running after a child, that's, uh, that's enough for me. But, uh, you know, I'm sure now that I have a garage in a couple of years and I get into full-on dad mode, I'll probably break, break up the kettle again and, and start brewing. Because I, I have a I have a question from a listener. Pretend he's in Missoula, Montana, and he said, "I've got that great Scotch ale. Would you just distill it for me into into a spirit?" <laughs> no. I mean, I'll do it. Sure, I'm, I mean, I'm out of line. I'm out of line. I'm out of line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know. I mean, if, if they got the if they got this if they got the beer, they got the money. It's like, why the heck not, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's uh, I, I would say. Wait, sorry, last one. Andrew. If I if I did have a, a batch of Scotch ale, let's say I wanted to do this Minnesota distill, um, how much would you need? How much beer would you need to distill it into a spirit? Like, what what kind of batches are you doing? Yeah, I mean, if you think like hypothetically, if it's a Scotch ale, say it's ten percent, it's higher ABV. And you have, you know, uh, you know, ten barrels, so it's like three hundred gallons. Essentially, you need to go from ten percent up to you know forty, forty-five percent. So you consider you got to condense that down four times. So three hundred gallons would become seventy-five gallons, but then you're gonna have about a seventy percent loss. You'd probably get about sixty gallons, maybe, out of that three hundred gallon batch. But so that's like a so you could do a ten a ten barrel batch of of base liquid. Yes, that's what you do. Wow. And sorry, Josh, you want you want to finish what you were saying? Want to wrap it up? I don't even know what I was saying. I was saying <laughs> words, words that were very exciting, or maybe not that exciting. Nah, I mean, it's just I'm just excited to you know get done with a project that thought was going to make a one year job, and it became like a three year odyssey through a global pandemic. I spent half the time writing the book at a playground while my kid played outside with like <laughs> kids trying to stay socialized and sane, and it's just like. It's one of these things where you compartmentalize these moments in your life and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, but you know, 
in the end, it's like wild to see this book out there in the world. And I mean, it's um, excited for people to be able to um, read what was going through my brain. And it's been it's been really heartening to see over the last 10 years how this book has really become like an essential educational tome for people, be it um, learning how to serve beer behind the bar or, you know, it's used as a college textbook for beer classes and things like that. And it's like, I never would have thought in a million years is how it's done. But it's like, you know, you put you put a product out there into the world, then people adopt it and use it in their own way, shapes and forms. And so it's like, Andrew, you make a gin, you're like, you got no idea how they're going to use it. Make a martini, who knows? They just yep. shoot it straight, maybe great. You know, you don't know how people are <laughs> going to use it until you get it out there in the world. So I'm very happy to have this beer book out there. And I am not writing another beer book for a few years at the moment. So this will be it for me for right now. <laughs> well, thank you, Josh, for because re- you did reach out and I, you did get my attention. And I really appreciate that you, that you asked me. And this has been a really great show. And, and thanks for bringing on Andrew. And Andrew, anything else you want to say to wrap it up? Uh, no, Neil, thanks for having me. Great to, uh, great to hear from you all. Uh, Josh, I'll see you on Thursday for sure at the book release, number six. Very yeah. exciting. Sounds like a plan, everybody. You know, thank you, Jimmy. It's been great catching up with you after, you know, been chat with you on the radio for many, many moons. Yeah, th- th- this is a special day. Thank you guys so much, Andrew and Josh, for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer, Armin Spengen, who will clean this up and, and make it into a really great podcast. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. All right, guys. Woo, thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.